0: Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody.
1: And I'm Brian Krim. final episode of season one we're going to do something a little different now our focus has really been on how historical events are portrayed on screen after 9-11 from antiquity all the way to the event itself but if we just confine ourselves to film and tv that deal with historical narratives we're missing where most of that commentary about 9-11 happens and that was you know originally science fiction um you know america's 21st century began with a trauma an event that produced a before and after milestone in some ways similar to the one that scholars of the Holocaust, including yours truly, have noted occurred in the culture as a result of that trauma.
0: Yeah, we've pointed out that Hollywood was hesitant to take on 9-11. We talked about how in its aftermath, it used history to disguise its intentions. That's, That's why we you know, took it up. And in contrast, the thing is, is that science fiction and horror or fantasy for that matter, because the distinction can be meaningless at times between those things, was processing our trauma and representing it really unapologetically, almost immediately after 9-11.
1: So this episode is more of a freewheeling discussion about movies and TV shows that use the otherworldly. To communicate all of our fears, anxiety, and let's face it, our total fascination with the aesthetics of destruction. Um, sci-fi has always been political. We know that from War of the Worlds, the book written in 1898, to the pre-World War II Orson Welles radio version in 1939, to the one we'll talk about today, the 2005 movie version that clearly draws on 9-11 for inspiration. And it's just not 9-11 that sci-fi takes on. It's the aftermath, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the birth and or the growth of the national security state, torture and detention, insurgency and counterinsurgency, and the always the mainstay of sci-fi, uh, the fear of the other. All of those are embedded in uh, sci-fi after 9-11 and take on a different and new importance after the event.
0: Yes, it's worth pointing out that there's an entire body of academic literature on science fiction's relationship to traumatic events like the Holocaust or 9-11. And we won't bore you with all of it, but I will take this opportunity to promote Brian's fantastic book for him, uh, Planet Auschwitz, Holocaust Representation in Science Fiction and Horror Film and Television. And so his expertise really is going to lead us in this conversation today because he has spent so much more time uh, thinking and writing on this subject than I have.
1: Well, thanks. I do appreciate it. And I did write the book you know, after teaching Holocaust history and cinema courses for many years, and both myself and my students noted how frequently these genres mine the imagery from both real history and the cinematic Holocaust to, you know, deal with trauma and horror, grief, apocalyptic ideologies, uh, the perennial fear that was repressed or defeated will rise again. Uh, for example, just think of how many films and video games tell us the Nazis are still with us. And a given current events, you know, how close to reality do our fears seem to be? Um, and while researching for that book on, on Holocaust imagery, I noticed more recent examples of this phenomena uh, that also dealt with 9-11 imagery just as freely as, as Holocaust imagery. And what they do is they often, you know, inform one each other. It used to be the Holocaust was the standard for representing horror in the modern world. Uh, and why wouldn't it be? But after 9-11, uh, there's a new aesthetic standard and the two twin horrors of of the Holocaust and more recently 9-11 really live together very comfortably in some of the TV shows and movies we both love.
0: Yes. And we see that it's uh, almost impossible for our modern brains to process these kinds of spectacular uh, events without putting them in a cinematic framework. I mean, just think of how many people referenced movies like Independence Day and its spectacular destruction of American landmarks just hours after the attack. I mean, the the shot of the film footage of people uh, running up the West Side Highway as the clouds of smoke were chasing them uh, when the towers collapsed that brought to mind scenes from something like Independence Day. It it seemed so cinematic and, Partly that was because there were simply no earthly comparisons to what we had experienced. Um, and we all know terrorism is, in fact, supposed to be cinematic, right? Um, you know, you shared that uh, the uh, critic uh, Neil Gabler wrote a few days after 9-11 this really interesting observation that, that uh, I'll read out here. Uh, he said, in a sense, this was the terrorists own real life disaster movie. Bigger than Independence Day or Godzilla or Armageddon. And in the bizarre competition among terrorists, bigger even than Timothy McVeigh's own real life horror film in Oklahoma City, which had been the standard up till that point. And so, um, you know, Neil Gabler pointing out that, that in some ways the terrorists were kind of out Hollywooding Hollywood.
1: Yeah, I know. And that's, that's a, a great point, And it's one that I can speak to a little bit because I was in the intelligence community right after nine eleven. I mean, I was very junior. I was kind of on the outskirts there, but I was aware that one of the big initiatives was for all the agencies to reach out to Hollywood writers and novelists uh, who also wrote for, for TV, uh, for ideas that would become when, what would be coming next? Like there was no way to anticipate, this new world of, of terrorism striking America, uh, in this way. So they, so, and the intelligence community reached out to the entertainment industry and said, what can we expect? Uh, literally trying to put ourselves in the, the, the minds of, of the terrorists means you are wondering, you know, if the next terrorist is going to be, something out of Tom Clancy? Is it going to be a far-fetched plot line from 24? Or would it even be almost from science fiction itself? So it tells you a lot that even this intelligence community that we studied, a lot we've talked about a lot in this series, uh, is having to go to the otherworldly for inspiration.
0: Yeah, that actually just kind of blows my mind. I mean, I just sort of picturing the i mean that is a movie plot in of itself it seems to me that 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 somebody should do a m- movie that maybe is a dark satire some kind of sort of you know Iannucci approach to the fact that you've got um you know analysts in uh in dc analysts at the pentagon who are uh y- you know, calling up Steven Spielberg to see if he has any good ideas as to what the terrorists are going to be doing next. I mean, that just there really is a movie script there. I swear, you, you imagine it, and then it yeah, happens. Yeah, I mean, God. well, and of course, it also is this bizarre uh, overlap with the uh, with Alan Arkin and John Goodman's characters in in Argo, right? But it's sort of a weird reverse thing, where instead of having the spies pretending to make a really crappy movie, um, as their cover story, it's, it's the spies going to the movie makers to say, okay, what do you think the terrorists, um, plot line is going to be next? Uh, but, but anyway, so I guess what the first thing I want to ask you is we're talking is based on your expertise, having been steeped in this as, as an analyst and then as an academic, so what are some of the common themes of post 9/11 sci-fi that you see?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the first one is something that obviously predates 9/11 but but takes on a greater significance, which is that the city of New York must be destroyed. Uh it was it has always been destroyed in <laughs> cinema mostly because, you know, it's there and it's everyone knows it and some people have a love-hate relationship with it. And and so even we talked about independence day that was the the landmark image before 911 itself of the empire state building dissolving and and uh the entire tri-state area uh area will soon be targeted after 911 because that was though the the area most affected so we have war of the worlds uh i am legend you know the the remake of the great uh well novel and early movie from the 50s about a pandemic that uh, turns people into vampires, but New York is destroyed there as well. Cloverfield, another movie we'll talk about today from 2008. Uh, The first season of Heroes. I mean, we can go on and on. It it was as if this trope had been just reinvigorated by the actual site of destruction and in ways that made people really uncomfortable. So yeah, New York is target one. Uh, A second theme, Just fairly new and obviously the result of a post patriot, patriot act society, uh, is that the surveillance state is watching you. And this is again a trope of sci-fi generally, but think of minority report, you know, another Spielberg as 2002, uh, scanner darkly. Uh, and then I think most recently, and the black mirror shows that it's not only just the state, but all of us watching each other in, really uh, just bizarre and disturbing ways that becomes part of the landscape. So that's the second one. And let me give you a third. The terrorists are everywhere. And in in 10 sci-fi, it's always okay to dehumanize the enemy, kill them without guilt or remorse. Uh, They are beyond other. And it's not a stretch to see the real terrorists or anyone who looks like them as also just the other to be exterminated. Um, remember the classic miniseries V from the 1980s? That was really kind of a, a, you know, story about fascism and how it could happen here. Uh, the reboot in 2009 featured aliens who were organized in underground cells like terrorists. They didn't come from space. They were already here. That's a theme you'll see come up in Battlestar Galactica, which we'll talk about pretty much, you know, the classic 9-11 sci-fi epic and um, So many other storylines suddenly show that the terrorists aren't these the aliens aren't coming from somewhere else. They're among us and always have been.
0: Yeah. And it seems to me that there's also um there's this uh, other theme of the deep state plotting the end of the world. Right. That, so that there's this new slate of agencies that we end up with post 9-11 that are supposed to be uh protecting us, you know, homeland security, which quickly turns very sinister in our feverish imaginations. I mean, even the use of that term homeland was really fraught at the time when that was first put forward uh, as um, the name for this new kind of collective or umbrella agency. And so, yeah, we, I, you know, there are a bunch of other uh, shows and movies that we can think of. We have the series Jericho, where government agencies actually nuked part of the U.S., Um, we have to start a coup, uh, point out, (laughs) um, also we've got, um, 28 weeks later, which was the sequel to the, the zombie classic 28 days. And in that the authorities, you know, try as it always happens, you know, human hubris, they think, oh, we can control the virus. Uh, that took out, you know, that that took out all these people. And 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 then, of course, things never go well. Right. Um, and so in in 1950s movies and novels, we I think that we see that the military and the government both cause the monsters through nuclear accidents, because, of course, at that point, the commentary was about the threats of nuclear uh, of nuclear warfare. But then they also deliver us from them. And I think similarly after 9-11, they're often unleashing them upon us. And then, yeah, OK, maybe they might be delivering us from them, but they're also covering their asses as to their culpability, you know, about the whole thing to begin with. So um, Resident the Resident Evil series uh, beginning in 2002 that has has some of that. And I'd, I'd also like to just uh, a couple of other things that I think maybe we can talk about. About as we're talking about our movies and TV shows today, is that I think there's two other ways that we can see 9/11 influencing science, and then the other, which we've talked about before, is the development of what's come to be called torture porn. You know, this depending on what you prefer. That there's this this kind of there's no kind of hopeful, warm and fuzzy ending anymore to a lot of these uh, a lot of these shows and a lot of these uh, films. They leave us with the nothing matters. And then the other, which we've talked about before is the development of what's come to be called torture porn. You know, this really explicit use of torture in, in film and and TV. Yeah. I think
1: that the, you can really see it right after nine 11, that horror Horror in particular is even darker than normal. There's not, there's not even a last girl anymore. Sometimes, you know, that whole trope of there's got to be someone who survives and, and, uh, triumphs over whatever the, the, the threat is, um, bot that's causing such horrific bodily harm to, to all of us. That often is even lost and not even just part of the landscape anymore And, in, in, in horror. I actually read a lot of, about this when researching my book, and I came across the, the scholar, Kevin Wetmore, who wrote about really denied, uh, horror after 9-11 particularly. It's a great book if you're just looking for how that genre is affected by 9-11. And just quoting from the introduction in that book, he writes this. Now, one key difference between pre-9-11 and post-9-11 horror is that the former frequently allows for hope and the latter, just as frequently does not after nine eleven nihilism, despair, random violence, and death combined with tropes and images generated by the terrorist attacks, began to assume a greater prominence in horror cinema. so I like that quote because it also I think applies uh, to science fiction, and he does uh, get in specifically to torture porn and here you have to think about the Saul movies of which there are six or seven Uh, Hostile um which uh, the first two are really they're they're very good films in fact, but they're very disturbing as well. Uh, any of the movies where Americans abroad, for example, are duped and tortured for being stupid, naive, or just plain rude—if uh, you don't see really a nine eleven subtext there, then you're not paying attention.
0: <laughs> uh, so,
1: so in post nine eleven horror, there's just oftentimes no reason for the horror. Uh, this really disturbing movie called The Strangers, where just Young, I think they're basically twenty-somethings. Just find a random house and torture and kill people for fun. Uh, there's no reason they just do it. It's random cruelty. So, how much of this was an attitude shift after 9/11, or the result of our own actions in places like Abu Ghraib or the dozens of black sites around the globe, where you know we've talked about this in our series already? Now, are we feeling pain or alluding to our own guilt for causing so much of it? And I think that's one of the open questions about. Uh, post 9-11 horror in general.
0: Yeah. So now we've got this kind of collection of, of themes and things that we are pulling out of the, the science fiction and science fiction and and horror genres. And, and so now that our, our audience understands that this is going to be the um, slightly different approach that we're taking today. We're not um, being as sort of structured as we have in the past. um, We're going to give a short list of a few movies and TV series that are worth looking at. If audience members, listeners are interested in seeing examples of what we're calling the 9 11 aesthetic, well, I mean, we're not, call- it's been called that, but that's th- this idea that 9 11 has kind of created uh, or cultivated this aesthetic in uh, science fiction, horror, uh, fantasy, sort of future, what, you know, however you want to, um, alternate reality. Um, you know, how you want to, to uh, think about these things. So, so first let's, we're going to talk about a few movies and we'll start with War of the Worlds, which, um, is yet another, uh, uh, entry by Steven Spielberg, which, um, sort of, I think is funny because much as the things that we've included by Oliver Stone, we have been kind of, um, unenthusiastic about, and it gives a skewed view of our, uh, the, you know, what we think about Oliver Stone's, um, oeuvre, uh, but in a similar kind of way, I have to say that the, that the fact that we've had so many movies by Steven Spielberg in our series, I think kind of, at least speaking personally, gives a rather skewed view of just how much I, attention to or enjoy Steven Spielberg, but I think it's the nature of the kinds of movies that he makes that it, that they fit in well with kind of what we're doing. Um, But we will try in future seasons, I think, to, to uh, uh, spread ourselves out a little bit broader in, in who we, uh, who we draw on But we can't help the fact that you know Steven Spielberg made War of the Worlds. I mean, in many ways, maybe that's the point of Steven Spielberg is that he's always so on the nose with whatever is going on at any given moment that you know he he is sort of right down the middle of the zeitgeist right uh, so
1: yeah but did. anyway
0: so maybe you want to talk about uh yeah we of the worlds and sort of give us our little introduction
1: yeah and and again if a lot of you have seen these movies and we want to just maybe have you see it a different way and or and and note that, that it is if you never thought twice about the fact that they come after 9-11 well maybe you'll go back and and enjoy it or at least critique it on a different level. Steven Spielberg released Munich around the, the, the exact the same year uh, actually as War of the Worlds and we already talked about that as really showing kind of the ambiguity of the war on terror um by using a, an historic example, but in, in War of the Worlds he's in some ways even more directly referencing 9/11. Uh, here's a quote from him during the 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 multiple Kind of appearances he's making on on shows to promote really both films. He said, you know, it seemed like the time was right for me as a filmmaker to let the audience experience an alien that is a little less pleasant than ET. Today, in the shadow of nine eleven, I think this film has found a place in society. Just what you said, Leah, that he, he he's always trying to tap into the zeitgeist. So with War of the Worlds. Um, it is based on the 1898 novel by H.G. Wells. The script is written by Josh Friedman and David Cup. The star is Tom Cruise. And also, I think, who really steals the movie is the young, and from what you can already see here, a very talented Dakota Fanning. Um, a memorable appearance by by Tim Robbins. And a great actor who plays uh, Cruise's son, uh, Justin Chatwin. I like him. He's in a few seasons of Shameless, and on, which is on Showtime. He's, he's really good, but not really in it for very long. The, the show, the movie is the Cruise and Fanning show. A father and daughter make their perilous journey from Bayonne, New Jersey to Boston, dodging these tripods, which are kind of vampiric alien creatures now and not the, the just sort of robotic things you see in the, the classic version. And along the way, as the movie shows you, human beings can be just as monstrous as the aliens, a trope that is also pretty common in in sci-fi.
0: Yeah. And we're really not imagining uh, these uh, connections or even it doesn't, it's not just that uh, one connection that uh, Spielberg makes himself. He also um, said that uh, his film was, quote, about Americans fleeing for their lives, being attacked for no reason, having no idea why they are being attacked and who is attacking them. And so I think that's also interesting because that's a real framing of 9-11 that is something that we've been talking about a lot. And that that surprise and confusion that so so many Americans experienced and then the pushback that came after that against anybody who tried to sort of point out that actually maybe it shouldn't have been so surprising and that perhaps there were reasons. And again, to be careful here, not justifications, we're, we're never saying that, but saying reasons, an understanding of why something happened. But that, you know, by him framing it that way, that is a a kind of really telling uh, addition to sort of what we were talking about. And And the film's specific references to September 11th, I mean, if our our listeners watch it again, you know, there are some really striking visual as well as uh, plot sort of similarities. And uh, and part of it is that war and terror are really a a way of life. That's kind of part of what's built into the plot of the movie. And so maybe you want to start giving our listeners a, a sense of some of the ways in which that happens. Yeah. One of the things is,
1: again, it's it's northern New Jersey. It's it's not the city itself, which is odd. It's, I found a quote from Spielberg where he goes, I didn't want to traumatize Americans too much by destroying New York. So, again, what does he do? He destroys, you know, the area that in some ways was actually just as affected because most, all these commuters are coming from places like uh, you know, Bayonne and, you know, all these uh, Newark and yeah, the, the path train type of crowd is most affected here, but it is very traumatic to watch the, this urban landscape and it's still very urban just disintegrate, um, and, and look exactly like that day with these staggering, uh, people in shock and awe with, uh, dust all over them and papers falling everywhere and just confused and in in chaos and American flags actually all over the dotting the landscape because this is 2005 New York uh so I don't think he succeeds in trying to (laughs) not traumatize us I think his whole point is to traumatize us
0: yeah the specifics of Bayonne New Jersey I think are really interesting if you think about the um the origins of the War of the Worlds um, notorious radio play, right? Because there it's Grover's Mill, you know, Grover's Mill is, is more, we imagine sort of inland or, or rural or whatever, but it's still, it's New Jersey. And so it's, I think it's kind of interesting that he in very actively moving it to Bayonne, he is both staying within the framework of you know how orson wells located it but moving it close enough to new york that it becomes tied in with the whole 9-11 thing
1: i was gonna say i actually saw one of these interviews where tom cruise interviews interview steven spielberg and all spielberg did was talk about how how he was affected he he memorized the entire orson wells radio play and um and that kind of that came up about how it, it still should be in New Jersey for for well, you didn't allude to it directly, but because it, it matters so much in our current landscape, that kind of uh, that geography. So I think there's a lot to be said for for how you just by moving it north, you you are connecting it to the 9-11 story without departing from an original that he seems to love so much. But aside from those visuals, and again, it's very visual for most people, but the plot points, as I noted, are kind of steeped in this uh, war on terror world as well. For example, the aliens aren't showing up in flying saucers like in the original. They are buried underground and waiting to strike like a well-organized terrorist cell. Cruz's children are, their only frame of reference for what's happening, honestly, is terrorism. And we want to show you, play you this clip, uh, which has, you know, Dakota fanning shrieking, you know, is it the terrorists? And, and Robbie, who's like the teenage son is, is also just convinced this must be some elaborate terrorist attack. Uh, it's really, I think audio, audio, the audio of this is pretty interesting too for the noise and the chaos, but also just the, the children's response is one that shows that this is the only thing they can think of in 2005. So let's play that. Where are we going?
0: We gotta go. We got maybe like the only working car around here. I'm not stopping until we're clear of it. Clear what? What go. the hell is going on? You saw, we're under attack! By who? <laughs> who is attacking me? At at Rachel, ah! Rachel keep it down. <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> shut up, Rachel. We're Stop driving! Do something! Okay. okay, put him up, Rach. Make the arms. This space <laughs> this is yours. This belongs to you, right? Be yeah. safe in your space. Be safe in your space. Nothing okay. will happen in your space. Okay, I'm gonna go to the front seat. I'm gonna talk to dad. I'm like two feet away, okay? okay? I
1: wanna know everything you know. This thing, this machine,
0: it crawled out of the ground, started torturing everything. It's killing everybody. What is it? Is it terrorists? This came from someplace else. What do you mean, like Europe? No, Robbie, not like Europe! So it's really interesting here with this clip that you can hear the assumptions and then the adjustments that are having to be made. And so, like 9-11... Everyone is having to recalibrate their frames of reference, which I think is really, uh, interesting, interesting here. Um, there's also another instance that is really, really a very specific call out to 9 11, which is that there's this plane crash where they're in, they've moved from Tom Cruise's sad, you know, divorced dad apartment slash house kind of place. And now they've gone to, the kid's mom's home that uh she shared, she, you know, has made with her new husband and they're in this really lovely house and they hear this incredible noise, which we, again, we're thinking that it's going to be one of these tripods coming. But in fact, what it is, is a plane crash, a, 747 literally sort of falls from the sky and plows into their house and there's this you know engine that's just kind of right there in the living room which is of course very much this uh you know call back to I would say most particularly the Pentagon that experience of um of 911
1: yeah and I remember that that when you, when they come out of the basement where they were hiding, the, the engine is literally where the television used to be as if, you know, we all watched nine eleven happen on television and you wait and you go into the TV room and there's a, there's a seven forty seven burning engine right where, you know, right next to the couch. I mean, that, that's, um, I think it's a nice touch by Spielberg, honestly, in, in, in a film that's, you know, not very subtle in other ways, but I, that, that, that was interesting. Another thing that, you know, every part of a film, this, everything is in there for a reason, you know, the, and one of the things that always struck me when I first saw this film was that Robbie, the son, uh, Ray's son has a very specific paper assignment that is mentioned at the beginning of the movie that is really never mentioned again, but it's so specific. It has to be there for a reason. And so, um, Ray's ex-wife tells him, look, Robbie has this paper on the French occupation of Algeria due by Monday. Why include that if it doesn't specifically reference the fact that much of this film is also <laughs> about resistance and revolution and and European imperialism, which, again, is something H.G. Wells wanted to comment on. And, and, and when, the, when it plays out later in the film that they're all over rural New England, And and uh, essentially exactly where the American Revolution began, these farmland, these farmhouses that is that not just telling us exactly a a major theme of the film is that this is um, it's there for a reason. All that is there for a reason. And we see it play out in other sci fi as we'll talk about Battlestar Galactica, uh, Falling Skies, uh, Revolution, Resistance to an Invasion. Is is a major post nine eleven theme, also and a post Iraq War theme for depending on what side you're on.
0: Yeah, I I have to say that when I watched it, and there's this mention of this that he has to do this paper on the French occupation of Algeria. I'm like, wow, he goes to a high end high school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because no, <Yeah. laughs> I really don't think that very many high school students are being called upon to write papers on the French occupation of Algeria. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was it, it kind of. You know, sort of clangs uh, in my mind, but maybe that's, of course, because we're coming at it from the perspective of of historians, and particularly in my case, you know, a historian of of imperialism, uh, you know, and, and European imperialism, and so I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Whatever high school Robbie goes, <laughs>
1: goes yeah, not an easy case, not an easy to, case. Um, easy to study. No. <laughs>
0: right exactly exactly um oh, and, and also the, to point out that h. G. Wells, in his original writing of the of the book, he actually was writing it to comment on European imperialism, he was critiquing this sort of arrival occupation, and uh in some cases in particular uh er- at that point in 1898 it was um relevant to uh point out the uh, the atrocities committed in the congo that had become a cause celebre as a uh just a sign of um or evidence of the complete lack of civilization that Europeans were bringing to other people around the world. And so, so you know, that commentary is built in right from the original, you know, version of of War of the Worlds. What does occupation, what does this permanent threat do to the people who are being occupied? What does it do to them in terms of their mental stability, their ability to uh, grasp a world that has become so out of their control and so horrifying. And I think that the Tim Robbins character in War of the Worlds really highlights this because, you know, he's this survivor. He's hiding in the basement of this old farmhouse. Uh, Cruz and Fanning uh, come there to kind of hide out. But he is as dangerous As the aliens are, you know, there's this kind of, uh, you know, are these my only choices to to become sort of an an unhinged uh, insurgent or to succumb to the invading force and. Uh, you know quite f- uh, frankly i think that that is in some ways kind of an insight into the mindset of terrorists whose paranoia is fed by their own reality and therefore when they go off the deep end there's kind of this this cause and effect that you can see in them going off the deep end. And, you know, Robin's character, you know, he frames himself that way, right? I mean, he frames himself as an insurgent and, and he tells Ray that occupations always fail. He says history has taught us that a thousand times. So there's a very direct connection being made between what's going on out in the world and what, um, What's going on in that uh, in that basement in in the movie?
1: But yeah, that character by Tim Robbins is uh, is a cautionary tale. It's like he's 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 babbling, he's crazy, and why wouldn't you be? And but 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 Ray near has to protect his daughter. But the uh, the the logic of Tim Robbins, which is a great point you just made, is that maybe he's coming from the perspective of of the the downtrodden and the revolutionary born from from oppression. And, and so maybe it doesn't sound so crazy from his perspective. And I love how he you know, is, is talking about occupations always failing when we're this movie comes out in 2005, when we're witnessing an occupation fail very miserably in Iraq.
0: So here, this might be a commentary on this wider question of insurgency and occupation. But we also want to bring it back to very specific imagery that we see that is, um, recalling 9-11 specifically, not just the wars after it. And a couple of those are that there is, first of all, the, the almost obligatory wall of pictures of the missing and the sort of messages, you know, hoping against hope efforts by survivors to find those that have, have gone missing. And then also there's this really telling little exchange where the the blood bank people are saying that we already have more than we need, which is, a, again, much like a 9-11. There were, you know, everybody was poised to help the injured from 9-11. And so people wanted to give blood because it made them feel less helpless. And you had the doctors and the nurses all poised at the hospitals all over uh, New York, uh, ready to take in the injured. Um, and of course, there, there weren't any. And so in, in both, you, we see these, these sort of reminders of 9-11 here. And now maybe we want to uh, pivot to our next movie, which is um, similarly has New York getting destroyed uh, from top to bottom poor New York, um, as a New Yorker, you know, I do have to say, I kind of, I kind of take it personally, but I think another reason, I think another reason actually why, uh, it's, uh, New York, I mean, because New York is in this weird place where it is both the city in the United States that is probably the least like the United States, like the rest of the United States, maybe, um, uh, second only or or you know coupled with new orleans was, but and yet it's the iconic city of the united states like it's this weird combination and i think uh another part of it is of course that a lot of cities in the united states because they are such cities of sprawl they don't really have a visual coherence to them they don't they don't arrest you visually i mean if you were to destroy the city of los angeles I mean, really, there aren't those kinds of iconic buildings that anybody would um, would kind of respond to. I mean, probably the closest thing is um, you know Chicago. Maybe could uh, give us a little bit of an emotional response with uh, tower buildings like the Sears Tower. But uh, but you know, really, it 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 has to be uh, it has to be New York. Um, and I think also. There's this really interesting uh, quote that I'm always reminded of that has to to do with this dichotomy between New York being both always seen as the iconic city of the United States, and yet the city that is least like the general population of the United States. In the aftermath of, of 9-11, somebody said that in the in the months immediately following 9-11, New Yorkers pretended that they liked George Bush, and America pretended that they liked New York.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and certainly Hollywood uh, continued to love New York as a site of destroying things and making those emotional connections you talked about. So by 2008 it became less taboo to destroy New York and and the film Cloverfield which started a whole kind of universe of two other films that come after it was pretty unique for being the really one of the founding features that deal with the found footage type of approach to to cinema and it also is known to be one of the early productions of the the bad robot universe and the J.J. Abrams universe in particular. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's very, very visual. And it's going to be hard. We're not going to be able to even play a clip because it's to kind of get to the idea of, of how this is a nine eleven film. For those of you who have seen it, you know that the takeaway is that the real monster is this giant Godzilla type of thing, but you don't even see that until well into really, the first half of the movie because the destruction is just happening and, and overcoming this collection of 20 somethings who are busy enjoying their urban upscale urban lives. And, and the reason we it's seen as such a classic nine 11 film, even at the time uh, was interpreted that way is because of just how shocking, stunning and overwhelming the experience is and for everyone who's caught up in it. And I think the quote I found that really helped me put it in perspective came from 2011 when a, uh, you know, a young journalist who was 17 on 9 11 had this to say about, about Cloverfield. And I, it really, it really uh, stuck with me. Um, this is Jessica Wakeman writing, quote, the first 45 minutes of Cloverfield is the closest thing I can get to showing someone else what 9 11 was like for me on an emotional level. Cloverfield nails what that morning felt like. The confusion at first and then fear overwhelms and all you can think about is the possibility of dying and needing to escape by getting out, out, out. But where can you go because the subways and trains aren't running? It gets what it looks like and feels like to believe there's eight planes in the air, that the president ordered any non-grounded aircraft to be shot down. They could be shot down above you, above your city and kill you. And that what if there's a ground attack? It depicts what it's like to be convinced that that day is the day you're going to die. You are 17 years old and you're going to die on a sunny Tuesday morning in the middle of New York City. You know, when when I read that, I went, that's that is how that film feels. You don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. This is one of the famous uh, trailer type of viral ter- trailer movies, because everyone was wondering what, what is Cloverfield because it all it did was show you images of, of New York destruction that, that looked a lot like nine 11.
0: You know, there's this scene in Cloverfield where um, everybody's trying to flee Manhattan across the Brooklyn bridge and that is very, you know, having been in New York City on 9/11, and having friends who, you know, everybody was forced to just walk home because there were no subways and and no buses or anything, and so. You know, everybody has the story of either themselves or people they knew who walked in some cases, you know, 15 miles that day because they had to walk out of Manhattan and then had to walk, you know, deep into Queens or Brooklyn to wherever, uh, wherever they lived. And so those scenes of people walking across the Brooklyn Bridge are almost as iconic and, you know, particularly, I think, to New Yorkers as as other scenes uh, from 9-11, like the, you know, the walls of of photos and and things like that. And so that idea that the people who are fleeing and are crossing the bridge then themselves end up being targeted, uh, whereas, of course, on 9-11, that was how people actually did get out of Manhattan and get home eventually but in cloverfield there it's almost like they're upping the ante one it's like uh no that walking across the brooklyn bridge that everybody did on 9-11 that's not going to make you safe either uh and so and then of course we've get we get the other uh symbolic thing in cloverfield which is we get the head of the statue of liberty uh you know, lopped off and just dropped in the middle of the street, right? So that, you know, that's the other kind of big um, uh, iconic New York item that's uh, that's deployed in a way to uh, to heighten the terror.
1: Yeah, I would say just one more thing about, about Cloverfield, because like I said, it is so visual, but the way they, uh, the, the Empire State Building just pancakes and disintegrates exactly like tower 1 i mean it, it, that what's really imp- interesting about cloverfield is how far they're willing to go to show you the aesthetics of 911 destruction just just changing the cause of it and a cause you don't even really see until, until fairly late in the film uh and and i was and, the, and also the moment that the building pancakes and the, the dust just barrels through those those neighborhoods and covers people in dust and soot and there's paper and they're staggering around and there's car alarms going off. I think that's why Jessica Wakeman wrote that, that piece because it, it must be for lack of a better word, rather triggering. Uh, and I wasn't even, I'm not a New Yorker and I wasn't that, that close. And I was really just taken aback by, by watching this in 2008. So I can only imagine what it would really was like. That's interesting. Some people. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you reminded uh, about the the dust because I, I've thought about that with a number of things that we've watched, uh, that it is really interesting how just being covered in dust has become so synonymous with 9-11. And I've realized that 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 gets deployed quite a bit now by filmmakers and and um tv uh show makers that the cuz i i i haven't gone back to double check this but i have a feeling that prior to 911 when there were big explosions or you know buildings collapsing or those kinds of things what they did to dress the people like to do the makeup for the the people was that they went dirty they went like like dark dirt and that post 9-11 the two things that I think that we took from 9-11 is that now everybody has this sort of smudge of dirt under their nose because everybody who was breathing in and out they ended up with this kind of the the soot that is the one place where you saw the dark and then everything else it's this light Powder. And I think it's really interesting that that has completely been adopted across the boards as uh, what you're supposed to look like after a giant explosion or a building collapsing. So I see,
1: Leah, that we have spent so much time talking about these films and the 9-11 aesthetic and the plot lines that uh, it's probably worth stopping here and doing another episode to talk about television that deal with the same themes,
0: Yes, I think you're right. I think that we had way too much to say about the movies. And now uh, we need to spend another hour talking about the TV shows. So I guess this wasn't the last episode of this podcast for the season. There's going to be one more. Join us for part two of the last episode.
1: This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by leah and the theme music was written by mike patterson check out our website livesagreedupon.com for more on each episode including clips and links to the films discussed be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox you can also follow us on twitter at livesagreedupon that's at lies underscore upon